Hello, nurses. This is Wacko from Animaniacs, and you're listening to The Riley and Kimmy Show. You know why? Because you're smart. See you later. The Riley and Kimmy Show. And welcome to this Sunday episode of The Riley and Kimmy Show. It's November 5th. If you're listening to the day the show's uploaded, episode number 1421. Right next to me is... Janet! I got one name. Hi there. I am your host, Patrick Riley. You know what you are. You're bumbling, stupid, incompetent, and useless. And those are your good points. Uh, yeah, that's so true. And the person who has even better points than I do is Kimmy, and she's right next to me. Hello, Kimmy. Hello. And how are you on this Sunday? Awesome. Uh, that's fantastic. By the way, check out the Riley and Kimmy Show's website for links to our social media pages, and for all kinds of photos and videos that we have recently added. Check those out. Find them right at our website. Also on our website, Celebrity Interviews. Also, we have nerd information, nerd links, yeah, pop culture links and things like that. And if you have an upcoming event you would like the Riley and Kimmy Show to be part of, to promote, you can hook up with us right on the contact event page. And I can't stress enough make sure you connect with us social media wise help the show grow tell your friends about us you can find all of those links right on our website what is our web address kimmy rileyandkimmy.com rileyandkimmy.com the riley and kimmy show That's a big question for this Sunday. Is Kimmy able? Is she is she alert enough? Does she want to play nerd pop culture trivia? Kimmy, what is your answer? Oh yeah. Okay, Kimmy. One of the things we're going to warn you is the timeline has been adjusted, meaning it's not necessarily running in chronological order. It could be, or it could be all messed up. Feel free to shout out answers. Help Kimmy with a question she believes in time travel. Answer. She thinks you can talk to her even though she's in your future and yeah, and, and you are in her past. Whatever. It works out for her somehow. She actually believes it does. So yell at whatever computing device you are listening to us on. Could be anything because we are mobile. We are global. The very first question we have for you, Kimmy, is game oriented. It was on this date and we are looking for... The year, not the decade, the year. We're giving you a 10-year plus or minus. The game Monopoly was introduced to the masses, mass-marketed on this date. What year? Mm, 1922? You missed it. It was 1935 that this happened. What is the company that introduces it to the nation? Milton Bradley. Incorrect. It is Parker Brothers. Oh, I guess you never played Monopoly, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I have. Well, we'll just have to refresh your memory about Monopoly. You and I will just have to set up a game uh, sometime. No, that's okay. Um, yeah, I think we can have no, like no, a, no. a Riley and Kimmy show Monopoly game. How mm, would that be? No, thanks. All right. It was on this date, Kimmy, the year 1940. This United States president wins an unprecedented third term in office. Who is it? The year's 1940. FDR? Franklin Roosevelt. You're correct. Going to the music category, the year is 1982. This recording artist releases an album, has a single from it. This single peaks at number 53 on the U.S. charts, which is kind of a shocker considering this artist had many, many hits, solo and part of a group. 
Kimmy, identify who the recording artist is. Here's your clue. The song is called Wake Up My Love. Can you identify the recording artist? No. It's a former Beatle, 1982. Can you tell me who it is? George Harrison. That is George Harrison. Many claim that the album that that song is off of, he just did it to end his contract. It was an obligation. He just threw something together because he was more interested in racing cars and doing other projects than that. He would come back after a little hiatus and then you know have major chart action. But that one was from 1982. Hmm. The year is 1994. This person at the age of 45 becomes boxing's oldest heavyweight champion when he knocks out Michael Moore in the 10th round in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, Kimmy, can you tell me who this person is? He was 45 in 1994. Um, I have no idea. Well, you know him. He would end up using his celebrity to market cooking grills. Oh, George Foreman. That's right, George Foreman, 1994. This actress, she was known for stage work, some film work, but really known for a certain sitcom that ran from 1964 to 1967. Identify the TV show first. Gilligan's Island. That's right. She was on Gilligan's Island, Kimmy. Tell me the actress's name. Here is your brief audio clue. I'm not sure. Oh, of course I want my Thurston back. Thurston's a veritable tiger when he's roused. All right, gentlemen. Tonight at dinner, we'll put our plan to work. I think I want the professor. Say something poetic, professor. No, anything that'll make Thurston boil. It's from a bizarre episode where Thurston ends up with Ginger and and she ends up with the professor and they go out to dinner and yeah, it's strange. Uh, any, any, anyhow, can you tell me the name of the actress, Kimmy? She played Lovey Howell. Mm, um, can't think of her name. It's Natalie Schaefer, born 1900. So when she started acting as... Mrs. Howell, she was 63 years old, going into 64 years of age. Okay. Although some sources think she might be older than that. Mm. Next person, Kimmy, born on this date, 1911. He was a singer, a guitarist, an actor. He appeared in over 100 films and numerous radio and TV shows under his name, you know, a show with his name. In many of his films and TV episodes, he appeared with his wife, can you tell me who it is? Here's one of his signature songs. Oh, give me land, lots of land, under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Now that one, he is solo, not with his wife. Other songs he would sing with her. Can you tell me who he is? Roy Rogers. Happy trails to you. Until we meet again. Yes, Kimmy's right. That's Roy Rogers, born on this date, 1911, died 1998 at the age of 86. Next person, actress Kimmy, born on this date, 
She won two Academy Awards for Best Actress for iconic performances, one of them being Blanche Dubois in the film version of A Streetcar Named Desire, 1951, but she also won something a little earlier from 1939. Tell me who she is. Here's your audio clue. I won $300 pay the taxes on Tara. Oh, Red, I did lie to you when I said everything was all right. Things are just as bad as they possibly could be. And you've got millions, Red. Go on, insult me. I don't care what you say, only give me the money. I won't let Tara go. I can't let her go while there's a breath left in my body. Oh, Red, won't you please give me the money? Do you know what that movie is, what that audio is from? Gone with the Wind. The character, Scarlett O'Hara. Who is the actress, Kimmy? Born on this date. Maureen O'Sullivan? Interesting. No, it's Vivian Lee. Vivian born, Lee. Yeah, born on this date, 1913, died 1967 at the age of 53. Can you tell me who her second husband was? He was very famous. They acted together. He was a director, too, director in some things. Mm-hmm. It was Lawrence Olivier. They were married from 1940 to 1960. She suffered from bipolar manic disorder. In his autobiography, Olivier discussed the years of strain they had experienced because of her illness. Quote, throughout her possession by that uncannily evil monster, manic depression, with its deadly, ever-tightening spirals, she retained her own individual canniness, an ability to disguise her true mental condition from almost all except me, for whom she could hardly be expected to take the trouble, unquote. Next birthday, an actor who starred on a TV show which you're probably totally unfamiliar of, you've never seen an episode of... 12 o'clock high, have you, Kimmy? No, I haven't. That was from the 1960s. He played uh, the last two seasons of the show. He was on that. Had uh, quite a substantial role during the the final years of 12 o'clock high. But you know him for a certain soap opera, Kimmy. What is the soap opera, Kimmy? General Hospital. Yes, he starred on General Hospital from 1978 to 1986, then came back later on and then eventually ended up as a ghost on the show. They killed him off and then he would come back and haunt certain people on the show. Can you tell me who the actor is? He played Rick Weber, number two. Completely for so long. For so long, I just wanted to hold you and crush you in my arms. You are more beautiful than you have ever been. All right, what's wrong? Everything's perfect. No, I know you're blushing. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. I know you're, I'm not. You're blushing. Kimmy, can you identify who played Rick Weber, number two, doing a little naughty stuff there with, uh, I believe it was Monica? <laughs> I don't recall his name. His name is Chris Robinson. He is celebrating his 79th birthday. It started out in poor Charlestown. Frank Smith's mom used to hang around. No one could prove that he was a crook to Luke and stole his little black book. It had names and numbers all in code. So Luke and Laura had to hit the road. They had to find the left-handed boy. Watch their step. They had to be coy. worth so much. Others wanted it like Sally and Hutch. But there's one thing I must confess. Sally was a man who wore a dress. Luke kept his cool. He ain't no fool. He set them both up cold. Well, 
Sally died. Hutch survived, and no one got to go. Little uh, General Hospital update there for you. Mm. How'd you like that, Kimmy? Little General Hospital rap. It is actually it was a release song, the General Hospital rap. Wow. Actress Elkie Summer having a birthday today. She is 77. This person, Kimmy, a singer, songwriter, guitarist, poet, best known for his partnership in his early years with Paul Simon in a folk rock duo. Who is it? Art Garfunkel. Next individual having a birthday. He is 58 today. Singer, guitarist. We have a sample of one of his hits from 1984. It charted at number six. Tell me who the birthday person is. Can you tell me who that is, Kimmy? Brian Adams. That's right, celebrating his 58th birthday. This actress having a birthday, Kimmy, she is the youngest person ever to win a competitive Academy Award. She won it in 1974 at the age of 10. She acted alongside her father in the movie Paper Moon. That caused her to win the Academy Award, not because she was next to her father, but because of her performance. She was in The Bad News Bears in 1976, Little Darlings in 1980. Can you tell me who she is? She's also known for being Michael Jackson's first girlfriend. Really? I didn't know that part. Yes. Tatum O'Neill. That's right. How old is Tatum O'Neill today within five years? Uh, 54. You got it exactly right. In 1986, she married a, well, famous individual from the sports world. Who did she marry? John McEnroe. That's right. And they separated in 1992, and they were divorced in 19. 19- 94. I see dead people. Notable deaths. It was 1960. This singer was killed in an auto accident in Texas at the age of 33. He had quite a few hits. Sink the Bismarck was one of his. Battle of New Orleans, another one. And this song. North to Alaska, go north for us your song. North to Alaska, go north for us your song. Big Sam left Seattle in the year of 92 With George Pratt, his partner, and brother Billy, too They crossed the Yukon River and found the Bonanza Gold Kimmy, can you tell me who that is? Who had North to Alaska as a hit? He passed away in 1960 on this date. No, I cannot. That's Johnny Horton. Next person passed away on this date, 1960, actor... Known for this TV show. He acted in movies prior to it, but he became identified with his TV show. Can you tell me the name of the TV show? It was a Western. Kimmy, can you identify that TV series? No, I can't. What's interesting, this TV series was used in a pitch by Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek, because he said Star Trek was Wagon Train to the Stars. Wagon Train is what this actor is known for, who passed away on this date. He was the Wagon Master. You know, the guy who was in charge of the entire Wagon Train was Ward Bond, who passed away on this date. At the age of 50, 70, died of a heart attack. The series would continue without him, though. But I, he was dearly missed, and it, it, in my opinion, lacked after he passed. Mm. The year's 1977. This orchestra leader dies in Houston at the age of 75. You know him 
every New Year's. Tell me who it is. Jamie, can you identify who made that famous? I should be able to. Yes, you should, Kimmy. Can you tell me who it is? My mind is just blank. All right. It is Guy Lombardo, who passed away in 1977. Next person died in 1991, an American actor. He was in film. He was on TV, which is surprising because he was a movie star. He dies at the age of 83 in 1991. He is known for this TV show. Kimmy, identify it. My Three Sons. That's correct. He played the father on My Three Sons. Who is it? Fred McMurray. Can you tell me the name of his character on My Three Sons by chance? Um, Dad? Oh, boy. <laughs> yes, we will accept that. It's Steve Douglas uh, is the name of the character. Do you remember him from Flubber? Did you ever I see that? I never really oh, you never watched saw it? You, you, that. No. How about Double Indemnity? Remember him in that? Uh-huh. Yeah. He could play. He could play nasty. I love him when he uh-huh. plays some of the nasty roles. And by the way, he is you know sort of the person who inspired uh, C.C. Beck to draw uh, Captain Marvel. Shazam. Mm-hmm. The way he did. Kimmy, I think you did a fantastic job on this Sunday. You weren't that distracted. I think you did a, a very good job with trivia. Well, thank you. And we're going to go back in time and honor something we talked about with the Golden Age of Radio. And that's the Riley and Kimmy show. We talked about Fred McMurray passing away on this date in 1991. He did a ton. I mean, a ton of work in the golden age of radio. We have two examples. The first one, kind of a gangster-related thing from the 1920s, not when it was recorded, but where it's set, the time period. It's called the Windy City Six. It's from 1951. It's a mystery thriller kind of episode. It's followed by The Lady and the Tumbler from 1953. Please be forgiving for the sound quality of these. They weren't recorded with the best of equipment compared to today's standards, or matter of fact, even of the last 25, 30 years, nor were they intended to be archived. They were recorded in some cases by accident and have remained with us to this day. Kicking things off with The Windy City Six from 1951, Here's our tribute to Fred McMurray on the Riley and Kimmy Show. And now with the Windy City Six and the performance of Mr. Fred McMurray, Autolite hopes once again to keep you in suspense. It all happened some time ago. By some time, I mean those days when Moonlight on the Ganges was a must at the country club dance, when our nerds was considered snappy repartee, when it wasn't entirely unfashionable to be seen in a raccoon coat complete with flask when the Harvards and the Yales met in deathless combat. Maybe it'll lose a little something in the translation, but it's worth a try. Anyway, as it happened, we were playing in a little pad on Oriole Street. Crazy Jack Fisher's high hat. 
It was a speed. But then what wasn't at that time? When the breeze was off the river, you could hear the riff notes of the Windy City Six blowing uptown. Reading from left to right, there was Corny Peters on horn, Rip Jackson on alto, Thurber Jones on the licorice, Tinkle Hobson on the Baldwin, Red Moore slapping, and me on the skins. I'm Carstairs Hamilton, sometimes known as Rimshot, but more often as Ham. So we'll keep it that way. Ham? Yeah, Corny? Uh, you booted the beat three times in that last set. What is it? Well, uh, every time I slide a glimmer over at that skirt of table 13, my ticker skips a beat. Maybe my sticks caught the fever. Oh. Well, those two playboys with her are Bull Hurley and Red Rock Sparrow. Hey, get ready to whistle again. They want to talk with you. Talk with me? That's what they said. Go on now. Keep the customers happy. Okay, Corny. Uh, somebody said you wanted to see me. I guess maybe it was a mistake, so I'll it just... It wasn't no mistake. Sit down. Uh, yes, sir. See this girl? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't think I ever noticed her. How do you do? Hello. You've been staring at her all night, and last night, and the night before. Oh, I might have been looking this way, but I'm nearsighted. You ought to be in George White's scandals. Now, let me give it to you straight, bad ears. We're taking care of this girl for a very particular friend. So lay off her, huh? Because if you don't, your poor old mother's going to have someplace to take flowers on Sunday afternoon. Your grave. I tried not to look at the girl, but I could still see her in my mind. Soft, dark hair. None of that shingled bob stuff. A real Marcel finger wave. A warm, young face. Lots more that curved down into a fur coat that must have set somebody back a whole truckload of upstate scotch. Once in a while, I sneaked a quick peek, and every time she was looking at me. And suddenly, I got scared, and I lost up a couple of beats. Tony got so mad, he blew up. But it didn't make much difference then. Our engagement was over. The Windy City Six broke ranks and went into Plan B. There we are, everybody! All under I headed for the kitchen. That was always the best way out. In the hallway, a small blonde guy was lifting a couple of shaking hands to his face, and his eyes grew as large as two hard-boiled eggs just before he got it. When I got out the kitchen door, I could still see that big, black-haired, vicious-looking guy peering out into the night, trying to see who it was that passed him in the hall while he was busy killing. I hope he hadn't seen my face. I ran for a while, and then I slowed down to a walk. The first few snowflakes of winter were starting to fall, and the world was pulling on that wonderland slipover. I turned my Chesterfield collar up around my neck and noticed I was still holding a pair of drumsticks. I thought it over for a minute, then I threw them into the darkness beyond the streetlight. I made up my mind that from now on I was going to stay out of joints like the high hat. When I finally got back to my rooming house, there was a surprise in a fur coat waiting for me, sitting on the front stoop. I uh, tried to ignore her. You blind or something? I suppose you get dozens of girls sitting on your step and I waiting for you. Hey. Huh? Oh. Were you, uh, looking for me? 
What do you think I've been sitting out here in the cold for? Selling subscriptions to the Police Gazette? Sit down. Uh, won't you come inside? It's safer out here. I haven't forgotten the way you were looking at me at the hi-hat. Oh? Say, uh, tell me, how'd you get out of that raid so quick? How do you think? I was with Red Rock's Farrell. They don't touch him. Oh, yeah, of course. Mind telling me your name? Cora Lee. Two E's. Two E's, huh? That's pretty. Tell me, uh, Cora, what do you want with me? How'd you find my place? Crazy Jack gave us the address. Farrell and Hurley sent me to get you. To get me? Look, I don't know anything. I didn't see anything. I told you I was nearsighted. 2040. They got a place up in the mountains. They decided to throw a holiday party. They want a band. Isham Jones was busy, so all you guys are being picked up. Huh? I lost my drums. Don't worry. They'll get drums. Let's go. Are you going with me? Somebody has to show you the road. Alone? Look, we can talk all about it on the way. And don't get any ideas, because I might send for reinforcements. And these reinforcements will make a marine landing look like Isidore Duncan's finale. You got anything brave to say? I'll bet you I'm ready before you can count to a hundred. By twos. I put the chains on my old marmon, buttoned up the Isinglass curtains, cracked a bottle of antifreeze, and we started off. The snow was swirling down faster than ever and was better than three inches deep by the time we were 40 miles out of town. Cora was under a blanket, cuddled up next to me like she meant it, her head on my shoulder. But it wasn't as romantic as it sounds because under the blanket, Cora was shaking. And it was the kind of shaking you don't get from being cold, but from being scared. I should have known then that something was terribly wrong, but I had to learn the hard way. Cora? Huh? Cora, why do you hang around with bozos like Red Rocks Farrell and Bull Hurley for? For the same reason you play in places, like the high hat. The best offer I got. Also the worst. Look, suppose I just kept going now. Somewhere out west, Chicago maybe. Would you go with me? They'd never let us get away with it. What do we lose trying? You don't belong with those guys. You belong where the air is clean and you only take a drink when you want and love when you... Please, don't. What's the matter? Did I say something wrong? Look, why don't you hit me on the head and throw me out and just keep going? Throw you out? Of course, I wouldn't throw you out to save my life. Oh, Ham, don't say that. About an hour later, we passed through the town of Norrisburg and arrived at a big private estate called Haywill Manor. The big party was going strong. The rest of the Windy City six boys had preceded me, all under escort. The man who answered the door was the one person I never wanted to see again. When I'd seen him last, he was killing a man at the high hat. Well, Cora, I see you got him. <laughs> you got a pretty smart way of leaving a raid in a hurry, Sonny. Kitchen door. I hope nothing happens to your luck. Kitchen door? I, I, I didn't go out the kitchen door. I, uh, I always leave by the basement window. <laughs> I hope for your sake you're right, Sonny. Mike, he's a genuine nice guy. Well, nice guy. I think you'll like this party. Lots of drinks, lots of girls, and lots of happy music, huh? Oh, sure, sure. I'll do my best. Uh, did you get my drums? Oh, don't worry about drums. If we don't have them, we'll give you a couple of <laughs> skulls of the... Uh... Now go on, pour yourselves a drink and get warm. Cora, who is he? Big Mike Donovan. This is his place. He's to the rackets what Dempsey is to boxing. Yeah? Well, I'm going to tell you something about him. 
I hear the human life means nothing to him. That he'd kill so anybody. So you heard it. Don't go broadcasting it all over the place. You want to stay alive, don't you? That's always been one of my chief aims in life. Then keep what you know under your hat, you dumb drummer. The party was big and it was bouncy. Cora was sitting in a corner looking scared. Big Mike Donovan, Bull Hurley, and Red Rock Farrell were gathered at the bar drinking an uncommon amount of liquor and looking our way every time they wanted to laugh. Herbert Jones began to get nervous and his clarinet developed an off-key squeak. The three men put down their drinks and came over. Which one do you think it is, Bull? I got ten bucks as it's a saxophone player. He's got a shifty look. Yeah, I'll take the bet, because I don't think he's the guy. Uh, which one would you pick out, Red Rock? Who else? The drummer. Yeah, he's afraid to look at us. I think you're wrong, too. I'm putting my money on a clarinet player. It's elementary. Every time he looks over at us, he shakes. Every time he shakes, he squeaks in the high notes. Are these the signs of a guy who don't know nothing? Maybe you're right, Mike. Look at him shake now. <laughs> hey, you, with the clarinet. He... Yes, Mr. Donovan? What's your name? Jones, sir. Thurber Jones. Well, Thurber Jones... Me and Bull and Red Rocks think you're a lousy clarinet player. I'm doing my best, sir. We got an idea we can show you how to play it better. Come with us, sir. Well, 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 I, I, I'll do better, sir, if, you, if you'll just... I me... said, uh, come with us. Hey, wait a minute. They walked outside. And that was the last time I ever saw Thurber Jones alive. The rest of us were as jumpy as cats, and we played for two hours without a break. Everybody was getting stoned, but I didn't dare take a drink. Then Big Mike called an intermission while they served the buffet dinner. But everybody was so drunk that nobody ate much. Big Mike began to be loud and noisy, and he was started waving a gun around, boasting what a great shot he was. He kicked open a couple of French windows. And out in the lawn, of all things, stood a giant snowman. Just watch, just watch. I'll blast every lousy button off his lousy chest. <laughs> he did it all right. Four pieces of coal shattered and vanished into the snow. Everybody cheered and then turned back to the food and drinks. Everybody, that is, but me. I couldn't take my eyes off the snowman. Because running down its crystal white front was red blood. Autolite is bringing you Mr. Fred McMurray with Red Nichols and his five pennies in the Windy City Six. Tonight's production in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Fred McMurray in Elliot Lewis's production of The Windy City Six, 
A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. During the years of the big thirst, homicide was an art. Sometimes it was Tommy guns against a wall, sometimes it was a concrete overshoe in the bottom of the East River, or maybe an ice pick in the heart. But out on the snow-swept lawn of Big Mike Donovan's mansion that cold December night, I was looking at the chilliest bit of murder any crazy hooligan ever thought up. A bleeding snowman. Only, now it wasn't a snowman. Cam, you better get back inside. You'll freeze out here. Uh... Yeah. It's Thurber, Cora. Thurber Jones. Poor little guy. He played the sweetest clarinet east of St. Louis. He was always loaning money to guys. He loved everybody. He never hurt a soul. Who did it, Ham? Who did it? Who else but your playmate, Donovan? But why, Ham? Why? You tell me why. You helped bring all of us up here, didn't you? Oh, but not for this. Believe me, Ham, not for this. I suppose you don't know that Mike Donovan killed a man in a high hat tonight. Well, I, I heard him bragging about it a while ago with somebody who hijacked a truckload of Mike's liquor. Well, somebody saw him. And I guess... I guess he figured it was one of us. Who saw him? It, well, I, I guess he thought it was Thurber. You mean it wasn't? I, I don't mean anything. I'm getting cold. Why don't you go back inside and join your killers? Ham. Go on. You've worked this side of the street for all the laughs you're going to get. Oh, Ham, I'm not the same as they are. I don't blame you for thinking what you do, but I, I wish you wouldn't. Yeah, all right. Let's just say the jury's still out on you. Look, look how proof to you I'm not like then. Here, you'll need a fast car. What are these for? They're the keys to Mike's car. It's in the garage. Take it down to Norrisburg and come back with all the cops you can find. Hey, Bertie! That's Mike. Cora! That's Mike. Where are you? Oh, hurry, please, go. I want them to get what's coming to them. I want them to get it good. Yeah, but well, what about you? Hey, Cora! Who are you talking to about me? Oh. Come on, back to the party, baby! Go on, go on. Before all of you wind up like Thurber. After she'd gone inside with Mike, I made a beeline for the garages and back. Just as I got the keys in the ignition, somebody... In case you don't know it, Flea Brain, this is Mike Donovan's car. Oh? Well, I, I guess I must have made a mistake. Uh, hey, take that gun off my head, will you? Mike hires me to do nothing but sit in the back seat of his car. Now I might get a raise. Yeah, well, I always like to see somebody get ahead. Uh, the gun. I might get a raise because Mike wouldn't like you to leave his party without first you telling him what a nice time you had. Oh, you, you got me wrong. I, I was going to write him a bread and butter letter first thing in the morning, honest. Uh, about the gun. Shut then. up before I shove it through your stinking skull. I start walking. The next thing I remember was being kicked through the door of the big house. The party kept right on whirling. Nobody paid much attention Nobody except the boys in the band, and they were beginning to get the idea. Slowly, they stopped playing, and then people began to turn around and look. It reminded me of a ring of faces about to watch a hanging. What's this all about, Chick? The creep here tried to lift your car. He even had the keys. Where'd you get them? Well, I, uh, I sort of found them. Hey, you can't do that to one of my... Shut up, you. I said, where did you get them? I told you I found them. Where did you get him? 
I didn't care whether I lived or died right then. And when somebody kicked me twice in the kidneys, the choice was made for me. I was sure I died because everything went black. When I came to, I was still lying in the same place, and the body was still going on. Nobody even looked at me as I staggered to my feet and wiped the blood and the booze and the glass off the best I could. I stood there holding onto the bar, wondering what to do. Wondering what it was all about. Can you still walk, stupid? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. And Charleston, back to your drums and stop playing. Okay. You know something, Blockhead? I didn't want him to stop. I think Big Mike's got something special in mind for you later. None of the boys in the band even looked at me when I got back to my drums and picked up the beat. Corny and Rip and Tinkle acted as if I were dead already. We played all through our sheets twice without a break. None of us dared stop. We knew somehow we were playing for our lives. Long about dawn, the party turned into a noisy crap game and nobody paid much attention to our background music. Cora was with them, sort of moving in and around. I saw her whisper something in Bull Hurley's ear and then later she did the same thing to Red Rocks. Then she sort of sauntered over by the band, not looking at us, but we all heard what she said. Boys, keep your eye on Mike Donovan. When he goes over to Red Rocks, get ready to move. It'll be your only chance to get out of here alive. Make it good. We all looked at each other and kept right on playing, waiting to see what she was talking about. Pretty soon it began to make sense. Are you dirty here? Making a pass at my girl. I made a pass at your girl, Mike? Just Tommy to you and Red Rocks both made passes at her. And I'm going to break both of your necks. Now, wait a minute, Mike. That's our cue, boys. Everybody up. Hey, Mike, don't oh, forget boy. your music sheets. Boys, this way. Out through this door. Yeah, I got it. Come on, Phew. This air feels good. Yeah. yeah, it'll feel better 100 miles from here. Where's your car, Hal? It's right over there, parked in front. Come on, come on. Yeah, I'll be right with you. Go ahead. Cora. Go on, get out of here. You'll never have another chance. I'm not going without you. Come on, Ham. Don't just stand there. I'll be all right. Yeah, for how long? One of those ready boys in there, we start shooting his guns again, and you might get in the line of fire. What if I do? I deserve it for being so dumb. Ham, we'll all be killed if you don't move. Well, Cora? I'd only get you in trouble. Yeah, I believe you, but I want to take you anyway. Ham, for God's sakes. Look, lady, tell him you'll come with him, please. Oh, Ham, I wanted anything but a dumb $35 a week drum player. Oh, I get it. Well, that tears it. I'm washed. But I never knew how wonderful a dumb $35 a week drum player could be. I'm coming with you. We all scrambled over to my marmon and climbed in. Red and Rip in the back seat, Cora in front, me at the helm, and Corny on the crank. Baby. What's the matter with it, Ham? Hell, it's ten below zero. Give it another whirl. For guys, sakes, make it go, Ham. Uh. Oh, no, we can't get stuck here. Well, just take it easy. It'll catch. Uh. Come on, Corny, get in. What did I tell you? Like a Swiss watch, huh? Let's get out of here. 
Hang on, we're off. It's Mike. They're coming after us. Yeah. Anybody hit? No, but we're going to have to move faster than this. Well, don't worry. I've got her souped up to where she'll go 50. Hold on. By the time we got out onto the slick, icy road, a whole car full of hooligans were coming right after us with guns blazing. The gating on his hand! Oh, I didn't know anything about guns, but one thing I knew was how to handle my marmot. It didn't weigh much, and I figured to pull into the next curve, climb the coal on, skid into the snowbank, and bounce off onto the straightaway. If that heavy roll tried to make it at the same speed and hit the snowbank, I was sure to go right on through. Tom, look out! The curve! Grab on, kids! This is it! Several courses later, I fluttered an eyelid open and ventured a peek. Somewhere I'd miscalculated, because we were now stacked against a giant tree right on the edge of the road looking down into the valley. And down there, a hundred feet below us, was a pile of something that had once been a rich, expensive automobile full of rich, cheap thugs. And around it, no one stirred. Ham, oh, darling, are you all right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so, Cora. How about you? I'm all right. How about the rest of you? I'm okay. Shaking up, that's all. I busted my lip. Look. I'll never put my base back together again. Well, at least we're all alive. Except poor Thurber. Well, what do you say we get out and take a walk into town? This is a job for the John Laws. that's the coda. It was the last engagement of the Windy City Six. We went out with a full arrangement and a big finish. It was in all the papers. Maybe you saw the spread. The boys on the front page, Mike Donovan and company in vital statistics, and Cora and me in the social columns. <laughs> yeah, we did it. Complete with old shoes and new rice. Oh, uh, if you ever happen to get up Norrisburg Way on a curve that turns on a steep hillside... With an old scarred tree looking down into the valley. Take five and listen. Maybe you can still hear an old clarinet squeaking on the high notes. Or if the light's right, maybe you could even catch the pale ghost of a big gunman with homicide in his eyes looking around. Looking around for a drummer who saw him kill. family I ever knew was my Uncle Jim Smith, who'd taken me up as a baby when I lost my parents. I was now 16, and I think of reasonable value to him. Jim was a professional strongman who took the name of Stone Crusher. It was spring in the year 1838 that we were wandering through Ohio, traveling slowly along the pikes with our cart and mare. 
and playing the inns and taverns with our tricks and acrobatics and feats of strength. For those who passed us on the road, Jim was just a big black-haired man and ragged. But to those who watched him in play or fight, he was a torrent of fierce trained muscles. And a wise man standing by might have caught in his dark, smoky eyes the glimpse of a startling brain. In those days, Jim was about 30 and in his prime. Look at the lightning, Andy. Yeah, it'll kill our mare this keeps up. Well, if it strikes the mare, it'll most likely strike us too. But we'd better get off the pike and undercover. Uh-huh. There's a tavern just ahead. Yeah, we'll try our luck there, Andy. Get up, Jennifer. Let's go. We can still land dry. The rain's only beginning. That's not much of an inn, if you ask me. Looks more like a rundown farmhouse. An inn that shabby may be good, Andy, or it may be evil. We'll soon see about this one. Well, I guess this lean-to's all they have for a stable. Mm, this is a wretched place. Well, it doesn't look too good to me either. But maybe we can play here for bait and bed. Come along. Now, Andy, this is a cheap place, so we'll put on our cheapest act. The one where I sit on a chair and you tuck my legs behind my neck? Remember, you're very awkward about everything. I know, Jim. Yeah, just as I thought. Yes, nothing but loafers and road scum. Yeah. But look in the corner there, Jim, with that young man and all the luggage. Yes. Yes, I see her. She's quite a beauty. What's a girl like that doing here? And with such a sullen-looking fellow? Well, must be waiting for a stage. Come on. And uh, stumble a little when I take my bow. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you are about to be entertained by the great stone crusher. Oh. 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 I'm, I'm sorry, stone crusher. I caught my toe. Uh, forgive the boy, please. I picked him up in Louisville recently, and he has not yet learned the trade. I'm teaching him one trick, though. All right, lad, sit on this chair. Now, I'll just tuck his legs behind his neck. So. Stop that, you Ruth. You're hurting the boy. Well, he's got to be stretched a bit, miss, or he'll never be able to do it by himself. Now then, lad, right yourself. Get to your feet. I can't, sir. Something's wrong. I seem to be locked. Well, that sometimes happens. Uh, maybe I'll have to cut a tendon. <laughs> Does anyone have a nice, sharp knife? <laughs> no? Then I'll do it this way. My uncle picked me up, swung me into the air in a somersault, and walked away while I took the fall myself with a roll and a bounce, as I'd done a thousand times before. He, meantime, was tumbling about the room. And we finished by dancing on our hands as the audience tossed coin after coin at us. At last, we picked up our money and retired to a corner table where Jim ordered meat and potatoes for us. Uh, it's a rum crowd, Andy, but it'll pay our bed and board. The girl was taken in most of all, Jim. Did you notice? Yes. She's a gentlewoman, Andy. She doesn't belong in this place. Well, uh, the night stage will be long soon. They're only waiting like you said, Jim. I overheard, the, I overheard the young man ask the innkeeper for rooms. They've decided to spend the night. Huh? That's odd. One minute they're waiting for a stage, and the next they're staying here. There goes the young man now. Out back with the innkeeper. 
Well, I say she deserves a pleasanter-looking escort than him, pretty as she is. She doesn't trust him, Andy. I can tell by the way she watches him. Yeah. She looks frightened. The fellow's deserting her, that's what. He's taking his valise with him. Hey, you see, he's walking out and, and throwing her to the pack. Yes, they're already looking at her and talking about her. Jim, do you really think he has? Yes, but you finished your supper. Go out and unharness the mare. I'll feed her shortly. I will, Jim. I went outside, and as I rounded the corner of the inn and approached the lean-to, I suddenly came upon three men and a lamp. And then, to my horror, I saw the young gentleman lying on the ground among them. He was dead from a cut throat. It was too late for me to fly, so I pretended stupidity. One of the men, an ape-like with bow legs and a flat face, was wiping a sailor's clasp knife on his pants, but he deftly hid it in his coat sleeve. And the men studied me in silence as I approached. Well, pup? Uh, what happened, sir? A eh, young man was absquatulating on his bill. That's what only he tripped and fell. He killed himself on that there side. See it? Oh, yes. Yes, I, I see it. What a pity. Poor fellow. Nasty accident. All right, boy. You nip in and tell the innkeeper's wife we want her. Tell her and nobody else. That's a smart lad. Yes, sir. I'll tell her. Jim, there's been an accident outside. So? Anybody hurt? The young gentleman. He tripped and fell on a side. It cut his throat. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Only there's no blood on the side. And an ape-like man is standing over him with a wet clasp knife. I see. We'll have to act fast, Andy. Come with me. We'll talk to the girl. I know I'm bold, miss, but it's out of necessity. Whose necessity, sir? Yours or mine? Yours, miss. Speak, then. The young gentleman who left you. Is he a kinsman? He's neither kinsman nor friend, and I'm happy to be quit of him. You are very quit of him, miss. He's just been slain in the stable. Oh, no. I'm afraid it's so. Andy here saw him. Then I, too, am dead. Oh, come on. Oh, there's more to this than you know. I'm sure of it. My only hope has been the night stage, but they'll never let me board it now. We'll see about that. My life's not worth an apple seed. Oh, come now. Even Andy here is worth an apple seed. One should never undervalue oneself, miss. They'll kill me. Not while you have friends, they won't. Andy, take your luggage. Quickly now. And out the door, both of you. Where to, Jim? Down the road. But stick to the brush. I'll be along with the cart soon enough. But can I trust you? You have no choice but to trust us. I suppose you're right. I'll go. Oh, here. Here, take my watch with you. But what for? Take it. Hurry now. Thank heaven. The rain's let up. Yeah. It's dark, though. Can you see well enough? I'll manage. But what about you with all that luggage? Oh, you forget I'm strong. Not as strong as Jim, of course. He's about the strongest man in all the world. He is? Of course. My name's Andy. What's yours? Well, it's... Sandal. Sandal Carrick. Oh, that's a pretty name. Oh, thank you. Tell me something. Why did he give me his watch back there? Well, 
Jim's mighty proud of that watch sandal, and he removes it on only three occasions. In stone crushing, and for time certain feats of strength, and when he fights. Oh, I see. Jim's about the greatest fighter in all the world. He won't be long. Uh, we can stop here, don't you think? Oh. Whew. Gosh. Girls certainly travel with plenty of luggage. I'm sorry it's so heavy. Oh, I, I don't mind, really. What if he doesn't show up? Don't worry about him. He'll be along in a minute. But will he really put me on the night stage? Look, Sandal, we're showmen, not thieves. You've nothing to worry about. You can trust us. I don't trust any man. Not anymore. There he comes now. See? Well, his word's true this far. Throw her luggage in back, Andy. Here you are, miss. I'll give you a hand up. Thank you. There. Now just sit tight and we'll go down the pike a bit and wait for the stage. But how will you stop it at night this way? Oh, I'll use a dry cattail and some sperm oil. Ought to make a fine torch. But where in the world... I've got some in the back. Carry it for fire eating. Oh, of course. Did they show much fight, Jim? Yes, the innkeeper and your ape-like man and the whole herd of your friends. Did it go easily? Well, they had a lot to learn about fighting. They know now, eh? They know now. <laughs> oh, I, I nearly forgot. Here's your watch. Oh, thank you. Get up there, Jennifer. Ah. Soon after, we put Sandal Carrick on the stage, and it drove away with her safe inside. Then we pulled off the road and went to sleep under the cart. Next morning, we woke to a clear, sunny day. And pretty soon, Jim had strips of bacon rolled on sassafras twigs before a fire. After breakfast, I had my usual lessons. Latin, arithmetic, penmanship. Jim was a great scholar and a very patient teacher. When we were finished, he settled back on his haunches and looked at me. Well, Andy, I now have a surprise for you. Huh? Really, Jim? What is it? No need to smile. This is an unpleasant surprise. It just means more of last night's trouble. You mean we're not out of that? Go look in the back of the cart. I'll do it, Jim. This is the young gentleman's valise. I remember seeing him leave the room with it. Yes, a little discovery I made while you were still writhing in slumber this morning. But how did it get in our cart? I've been thinking about that. I believe the girl who... Uh, I believe the girl was in peril. And the young man who was supposed to be her protector decided to abandon ship. So he went outside and saw our cart in the lean-to. He stowed his valise in the back and was just ready to drive off when he was overtaken and slain. Then he was going to steal our cart and mare. Well, if you ask me, he got what was coming to him. He wasn't killed for that. Open the valise. Well, nothing much here, Jim. Just clothes. That's what I thought at first. Look in the toes of those boots. Great heavens. It's a... It's a pouch full of gold. Yes, I've counted it. Five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars? Now look in the other toe. Ah, it's it's a a letter of some sort, Jim. Yes, I know. I didn't take time to read it. But give it to me. Here. Now then, it's addressed to a Mr. Barnum, Four Chimneys, Blue Lion, Ohio. Then that's the name of the young man who got his throat cut. Yes, poor Mr. Barnum. For such delicate handwriting, must be a woman. Ah, yes, it's signed by Miss Sandal Carrick. That's the girl, Jim. She told me her name last night. She did? Well, I asked her to. 
Well, that's bad manners to ask a lady her name, Andy. But now we know who wrote the letter. It's still bad manners. Yeah. All right. But read it, Jim. Well, let me see. Dear Mr. Barnum. Go on. I have reason to believe that you are in this horrible business against me, despite our childhood friendship. I know I cannot buy the others out, but I have a feeling I can buy you out. Uh-oh. You've always liked the color of money. Here is my proposition. Meet me in Cincinnati at the stage office on the 11th. Come with me on the journey home as my protector and then withdraw. For this, I will pay you $500. Oh. Your ancestors were gentlemen, which I assume makes you a gentleman. Signed, Sandal Carrick. Fine protector young Mr. Barnum turned out to be. Yeah, Sandal Carrick made a bad choice in him. He was already against her, as she says in the letter. But, but why did he get murdered, Jim? Well, they must have known of the $500. Your ape-like man and his friends wanted it, that's all. They were waiting at the tavern, then. Yeah, it looks that way. Barnum was in with them and had them planted there. He figured they'd kill Sandal Carrick, and he got it instead. And they'd have killed her, too, if we hadn't stolen her away, Jim. I'm sure of it. But why they wanted to do this, we've no way of knowing. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe Sandal will tell us when we return the money. Maybe. But where do we find her? Probably in that town, Blue Lion. No. No, I can see the letter reached Blue Lion by mail stage. But where it was mailed from, I can't tell. What do we do, Jim? Blast if I know. Well, you you could figure that since we did the protecting and not Mr. Barnum, that we've earned the money. And that way we could just forget about Sandal Carrick and keep the $500. We made no such arrangements with a girl, Andy. All right, Jim. So we'll just have to find her. We'll head for Blue Lion. Maybe we can get a lead on her there. Well, let's pack up and be on our way. In just a moment, we will continue with Act Two of the Hollywood Radio Theater. An Indiana soldier by the name of Birch Bay, yes, that's his real name, carried a little excess equipment overseas with him to Germany for occupation duty. To be exact, he had $4 worth of vegetable garden seeds in his duffel bag. You see, Birch had been a star pupil in agricultural extension work and president of his 4-H club for two years. His military police company arrived for duty in the little German village of Hungen. Here, Birch sent out word to the children that he had a job for them. Ninety turned up, and they represented 45 different families. During his off-duty hours, Birch laid out a garden tract on the edge of town in 45 plots, each six by 20 feet. He parceled out the seeds and supervised the planting. An astonishing quantity of vegetables was raised, and something else was raised, too. The morale of all the people in the village who needed not only food for their stomachs, but sustenance for their spirits. Such acts by you and your friends today are shaping our world of tomorrow. Now here's Act Two of The Lady and the Tumblers, starring Fred McMurray as Jim. Just at dusk the following evening, we came to the town of Blue Lion, a pleasant, sleepy hamlet built about the Blue Lion Tavern, which was a large, showy inn and obviously thriving. We turned our mare over to a groom and entered. As the innkeeper came forward to meet us, 
He noticed our ragged clothes and his eyes grew stony. Jim faced him, his eyes equally stony. Good day, gentlemen. Good day, sir. And my compliments on this elite hostelry. Thank you. But our rates are rather high, my friend. There's a farmer's inn just north of town. There are times, sir, when I enjoy high rates. I'll be happy to meet your prices if you'll tolerate us. If you meet my prices, I'll be happy to tolerate you. Excellent. Here you are, then. Will that cover it? What? A copper penny? Take this back and be off with you. Oh, you're mistaken, sir. Look again. What? Well, now it's a quarter eagle. Ah, you play tricks. <laughs> Only to make friends. Well, well. Well, for such money, you shall have the best here. Well, come with me. I'll find you a table and you shall eat. This way. But, Jim, a quarter eagle for a night's lodging. Have you lost your mind? Possibly. Time will tell. What do you mean? Well, for a quarter eagle, we want first a friendly host, then information. Next, good food and a good bed. And finally, the return of our quarter eagle. There have been worse deals. Uh, we're headed for trouble, if you ask me. Man is born to trouble, Andy. Here you are, gentlemen. Sit down. We serve the best food in Ohio here, and from the best plate in Chinaware west of the Allegheny. I'm glad to hear that. But before we eat, I have a question. Ask it. Well, it strikes me that I have an acquaintance in this town of Green Lion, a Miss Sandal Carrick. She and her mother have quarters with a relative, I believe, a Mr. Farnham, who lives in a house known as the Chimney on South Crown Street. Now, uh, is this Mr. Farnham present among your guests this evening? I'm afraid you're rather badly confused, my friend. This fine town is Blue Lion, not Green. I've never heard of any Miss Sandal Carrick here. There's no Farnham hereabouts, uh, but there is a Mr. Barnum, and he lives alone. Also, his residence is known as Four Chimneys, not the Chimney, and lies first house beyond the creek on Oak Lane, not South Crown Street. Furthermore, he's now deceased, as of two days ago, from an accident down Cincinnati Way. There. Have I made myself clear? Intolerably, sir. And I thank you. We'll have our supper now. I wish you a good appetite. Thank you. That was very clever, Jim, but it only leads us to the house of a dead man. Sandal Carrick doesn't even live in this town. True, true. Well, then wouldn't it be easier to advertise for her? We'd find her that way eventually. Don't forget she's in danger, Andy. Immediate danger. I never saw you so determined to help anyone, Jim. Hmm. Andy, your father died of a broken heart, as they say, soon after your mother's death. I've never told you this. No. No, you haven't. But why are you telling me now? Your mother died through my carelessness. What? We were standing in an inn yard down in Savannah, just your mother and I. And she was ridden down by a crazy, fractious horse. I saw the horse rear and shouted a warning. But, Jim, how do you see it that you were careless? You warned her. I should have thrown the horse to the ground. I should have thrown him bodily on his side on the cobblestones. I've never seen such a feat performed. You'd have seen it then, Andy, had I only my wits about me. I knew that horse was a killer when I looked into his glassy eye. And you really blame yourself? I do. But never again will I permit a killer, man or beast, to ride down a helpless woman. Oh, I see. You're thinking of Sandal Carrick. I'm thinking of Sandal Carrick. After our supper, we went out into the night and made our way to Oak Lane, where we found Mr. Barnum's house, dark and shuttered. There Jim left me in the yard while he chose a likely window on the second story and climbed up to it. 
A moment later, he pried it open and was inside. I could see a match flare as he lighted a taper and began to search the room. And then suddenly, my throat went stiff. Another light appeared in a room just below. Two lights, one upstairs and one down. I started across the yard to warn him somehow, then his light went black, and I realized he must be going downstairs. I ran around to the front door, found it off bolt, and entered. Down the hallway ahead of me, I saw candlelight from an open door, and I crept up to it. Inside, Jim was leaning against the wall by a huge mirror, and across the room from him, holding a rather long, flat, rosewood box, was Sandal Carrick. And what is that you're carrying under your arm, Miss Carrick? Never mind. I hardly expected to meet you here. I've been searching for you. I have $500 that rightfully belongs to you. You what? Money I recovered from the effects of the late Mr. Barnum. Oh. And what became of the boy who was with you? Which boy? Boys to me are like thistles, without number or value. I pick them up and discard them thrice weekly. <laughs> then may I ask what brings you here? The money and the fact that you led me to believe you were in peril. I've been searching you out to help you. Ha! I have no other aim or desire. I'm telling you the truth. It appears to me, sir, that you've accidentally stumbled upon something which you believe can be turned to profit, and that you've come to this house in an attempt to gain further information to that end. I see. I think it's your hope to replace Mr. Barnum himself in the jeopardy which has been laid against me. Therefore, I consider you a menace. Oh, I am a menace. I no longer trust anybody at all. I'm a different person of late, and I've decided to handle this business, and, and you too, by myself, firmly and squarely as it should be handled. Excellent. I quite approve. You ask about this box I brought with me. Well, it's for emergencies like this. I will meet your price. I doubt if you can. We shall see. Uh, stay where you are while I open it. Sandal laid the rosewood box on a nearby table. Then she carefully opened it and drew forth an enormous horseman's pistol. She swung it around with both hands as though it were a cannon on wheels, pointed it at Jim, and pulled the trigger. Well, you missed, Miss Carrick. You shouldn't fire a pistol at anyone unless you can hit him. I, I have a second chance. Perhaps you didn't know that these things come in pairs. Oh, yes, like doves. Now then. Jim was across the floor with a tumble and a leap, oh. and she was in his arms. Gently, his powerful right hand clamped about her wrists and forced the pistol muzzle above her head. Then... He slowly pulled the trigger. Oh. Oh. There. Now you may replace the pistols in the box. Oh, you, you brute. You must forgive my roughness, Miss Carey. But after all, you were trying to kill me. I would have, too. Hello. Andy. Good evening, Sandal. But he said he'd thrown you away or something. Jim likes to be diabolical. Oh, you're rather well-educated for a tavern player. Jim educates me every day. Oh? And to think I almost killed him. <laughs> Jim's about the hardest man to kill in all the world. You confuse me, both of you. I'll be going now. Where? Uh, where do you live, Sandal? Uh, Tell me, Miss Carrick, now how are you fixed for transportation? I have a riding horse hidden in a thicket by the creek. Splendid. Goodbye. Oh, here. Don't forget your pistol box. Thank you. And here, in this pouch, is your $500. Thank you, sir. Good night. Good night. 
Sandal Carrick was about the most suspicious woman I'd ever met. But perhaps she had good cause to be. Jim and I said no more about her until noon next day, when we were far to the north of Blue Lion. We'd traveled along the pike all morning and had pulled off onto the turf to rest the mare and to eat our lunch. After we'd finished, Jim pulled a paper-wrapped bundle from his coat pocket. Here, Andy. Catch. I found that last night in Mr. Barnum's bedroom. What is it? Open it. Why, they're mittens. And of the most beautiful fur. Northern lynx, in fact. So? That's what it says in this letter. It was attached to the bundle. Read it, Jim. Well, it's addressed to Mr. Barnum from somebody called J.C. Ives, and it says, Here's something to make old Jason Peregrine really drool. Northern Lynx mittens. Post them to him from Cincinnati as you did the beaver lap robe. Enclosed is a letter I have written for you to send along with them. Yours, C.J. Ives. What's it all about, Jim? Well, the enclosed letter to Jason Peregrine explains a lot. What's it say? Well, let me see. There's a, sir, it gives me great pleasure to inform you that the Peregrine Ives Fur Company has just established a new and thriving string of posts in the Popoegee River Country. And it gives me further pleasure to send along this pair of northern lynx mittens fashioned especially for you by one of our trappers deep in the Teton Mountain Range. uh, Respectfully, our Detterman manager, St. Louis Branch, Peregrine Ives Fur Company. Well, that that doesn't explain much to me, Jim. You haven't lived in the world long enough, Andy. It's clear to me that Jason Peregrine and C.J. Ives own the Peregrine Ives Fur Company. Well, I understood that much. But it's also clear to me that Peregrine's partner, Ives, is swindling him. There's really no fur company at all. The manager in St. Louis is non-existent, and he's kept Peregrine coming on by having presents like those mittens and the lap robe sent to him. It's all a hoax to get Jason Peregrine's money. Where does this Peregrine live, Jim? Well, according to the address, it's uh, Matlitzville, Ohio. Matlitzville? Yes, it's about ten miles up the pike. We'll be there tonight. Oh, good, let's get started. Uh, what'll I do with these mittens? I'll wrap them up. We'll take them along. Mr. Barnum evidently fa- uh, failed to mail them. Maybe his conscience began to bother him. You're learning, Andy. And and maybe uh, that's why he got killed. Yeah, you're growing up by the minute, my boy. You think we'll find Sandal Carrick in Matlitzville, Jim? It wouldn't surprise me a bit. That is, if she's still alive. Oh, Jim, they They, wouldn't dare. They've killed one person already, Andy. Come on, let's be on our way. For station identification. The curtain rises on Act Three of The Lady and the Tumblers, starring Fred McMurray as Jim. Twilight had come when Jim and I creaked into Matlitzville. It was a fair-sized town with two inns facing the main square. 
One was a huge frame monstrosity bearing the sign Cumberland House, and the other was a squalid shack whose sign said simply, Beds and Food, Sam Mahaffey Proprietor. Jim drove past the Cumberland House and into the tumble-down stable of Sam Mahaffey's ruined inn. There he tied the mare, and we walked back to the front door and entered. A short, jovial man with mutton-chop whiskers greeted us. Strangers, guests, friends, customers, welcome to Sam Mahaffey's humble inn. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You don't look rich, neither you nor the lad, but that's all right. My inn is plain, so it won't cost you much. I'm not a journeyman grubbing for his sustenance, sir. I am Stone Crusher, the strongest man in the world. Then you are all the more welcome. I like the look in your eye the moment I saw you. Tomorrow in the square outside, I intend to give an exhibition, pitting my strength against a mammoth rock. I carry playbills announcing this performance. Would you be good enough to tell me which places uh, it's prohibited to tax such bills? <laughs> Certainly I will. Your bills are not allowed on the elm before the courthouse, nor on any shop door, nor on the pillars of the Cumberland House. Then I'll tack them in those places only. For the sake of causing anger and rumor and excitement, you understand? You're a fine fellow, Stone Crusher, and I'm proud to have you with us. I have a little daughter who'll enjoy the show with me tomorrow. Good, Sam. And now one other matter. A uh, cabinet maker I know did some work here once for a very charming lady, a Miss Sandal Ives. You're twisted. It's Miss Sandal Carrick. Oh. She lives with her grandfather, Jason Peregrine, across the square, fourth house down from the Cumberland. I, uh, I had it wrong. You did indeed. C.J. Ives is an entirely different party. His office is straight across the square next to the inn. I don't love him at all. He's rich, though. Owns the Cumberland house. Hmm. Uh, with your permission, Sam, I think we'll pay C.A. Ives, uh, Ives a visit before supper. You're your own man, Stone Crusher. Do as you like. Supper's in an hour. We'll be here. Come along, Andy. Did you hear what he said, Jim? It's Sandal's grandfather. Jason Peregrine, yes. Well, no wonder she's mixed up in this. But uh, what are you going to say to C.J. Ives? Oh, anything that comes to mind, Andy. Anything that will upset him for the moment and make him at least hesitate about doing Sandal Carrick in. Yeah. There he is, in his office. See him? Yes. Looks like a possum, doesn't he? Except a possum's harmless. Let's go in, Andy. Who are you? Let's go closer, Andy. Out! Get out! Do you hear me? We are destitute, sir. We've just finished a hard journey. Take off your hat! Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Now, what's this about a hard journey? Fifteen hundred miles. All the way in from the Povoagee country, sir. That's Trans-Mississippi, you know. I'm a trapper stranded here in Matlitzville. A trapper, you say? From the Povoagee country? No, no, from the Teton Range. I'm very familiar with the Povoagee country, however. You are, eh? Uh, how goes the fur business there? There is no fur business along the Povoagee now. It's moved back. Oh, you must be mistaken. I have a string of posts along the Popoagi. I've seen no fur posts along the Popoagi. Perhaps you mean along the snake. I mean along the Popoagi. Then, sir, I think you are being swindled. Mm. If you are financing fur posts along the Popoagi, you certainly are being swindled. Mm. Swindled. Stop saying that word. I'm sorry, sir. What are you doing here anyway? Whoever heard of a trapper being stranded? Oh, no, sir. Not trapper. Trooper. What? I'm a showman. Oh. Then what were you doing in the Teton Mountains, performing for grizzlies? I was visiting my brother, 
Uh, he's a trapper, not a trooper. What? Performed for grizzlies, you say. No, 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 I, I'm too shrewd for that. Well, there. Two dollars. Now, get out of here. Well, the gentleman wants an exhibition, Andy. What would you like, sir? A little tumbling, perhaps? Or fire eating? No exhibition. I want you to get out of town. Out of town by daybreak, or you'll regret it. Do you hear? That money's foul, Andy. Leave it. Get out! You are unwell, sir. Mm. Come along, Andy. Well, Andy, did you enjoy yourself? I did not. That C.J. Ives gave me a chill, Jim. And quite rightly. He's obviously the person who ordered the murder of Mr. Barnum. And who's after Sandal Carrick? We've got him on the run, Andy. We've got him topsy-turvy. I think what you mean, Jim, is that he's going to have to get rid of us next. Isn't that it? (laughs) You're smarter every day, Andy. Every single day. But wait. This, I believe, is the house, according to Sam Mahaffey. Yeah. I wonder if she's home. Yeah, we'll soon see. Miss Carrick, I think I've got this business figured out. May we come inside? Come in. Uh, Come in. Won't you sit down? Thank you. Hello, Sandal. Hello, Andy. Well? Miss Carrick, where is your grandfather, Jason Peregrine? He's a very old man and he retires early. Is he a very wealthy man? He owns about half the town. He doesn't own Cumberland House. Well, he did once, but that and a few other properties seem somehow to have gotten into the hands of a certain C.J. Ives. Yes. I, you shouldn't be trying to help me. Well, perhaps not, but uh, I've started and I don't seem to be able to stop. I think I'm beginning to trust you. I don't quite know why. Well, it's easier than trying to pistol me. Oh. <laughs> Tell me, do you know that this Ives is swindling your grandfather? That the Peregrine Ives Fur Company is a myth? I've long suspected it. But I have no proof. And I can't tell my grandfather. He's old and proud, and it's his money. Let him spend it as he wishes. Why did you make that trip to Cincinnati with Barnum? I went to Cincinnati alone. A man named Detterman wrote me from there, warning me to leave my grandfather's affairs alone. Detterman is non-existent. So I discovered. Then I bribed Mr. Barnum to come back with me for protection. And why did you stop at that miserable inn? Well, that was Mr. Barnum's idea. To throw off pursuers, if any. He brought you there to have you slain. I suspected as much when I saw Mansur there. And who is Mansur? Mr. Ives' bodyguard. You and Andy mentioned him, an ape-like man? Oh, that one. He's the one who killed Mr. Barnum. Yes, for the $500. And then he would have done... uh, Then he would have been after you. Yes, I know. I owe you my life. You trust me now, Sandal? Yes, Jim. I trust you. Well, this business is far from finished, but we'll see it through. Oh, you must be careful. There are times when it doesn't pay to be careful. Good night. Oh, please. Come, Andy. Uh, In a minute, Jim. Sandal. What is it, Andy? I want to tell you something. About Jim? No, about me this time. Well, of course, Andy. I want to tell you that my mother is dead. Oh? Have you ever been an aunt? No. Well, Jim's my uncle.
Of all the feats Jim performed, stone crushing frightened me most. First, we went into the country and selected a thick slab of stone, weighing goodness knows how much. Then we brought it back to the square where half the town had gathered. I didn't see Ives there, but Stan- Sandal stood at the front holding a little pink parasol and looking quite gay. I was sure she'd never seen stone crushing before, or she'd have been as worried as I was. Sam Mahaffey came up with his little daughter and stood by me as Jim stripped to the waist and faced the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, you are about to witness a marvelous exhibition of strength, muscle and bone against cold iron and rock. There on the grass lies a monster stone that I will have placed on my chest, where a volunteer will smash it with this sledgehammer. On my honor, there is no fakery to this. It is a matter of brute strength alone. Now, I need two husky men to place the rock on my chest. You, sir, and uh, you, if you will, step forward. Sam Mahaffey, I suspect you've been acting as our advance agent. This is quite a crowd. I liked you both first time I laid eyes on you. And I'll also need a volunteer to break the stone with this sledge. Who among you would enjoy this memorable pleasure? This is the danger, Sam. How, son? Well, you see, if the volunteer can't handle a sledge, the hammerhead might slew when it hits the rocks and strike Jim in the skull. That would be sure death. Surely there's a man strong enough among you to wield the sledge. I will. I ain't too strong, but I'll take a try. Oh, no, Sam. It's that ape Manser. He's a murderer. You killed Jim, sure. I know him well. Uh, hold up a minute. I want my woman to see this. Yeah, we'll wait, Sam. Pop into the house, daughter, and get Mama. And while you're there, look in the top drawer of my dresser and bring back my thingamabob. Be sure it's loaded. <laughs> then wrap it in a towel and come back. Hurry now. What's on your mind, my happy? Why, nothing at all, man, sir. I'm referring to my pipe. There's a craving for a smoke coming over me. You're holding up the show. I'm sorry for that, and I apologize all around. But I mean to get the fullest enjoyment out of this here stone crushing, and I need my thingamabob to do it. My woman will enjoy it, too. I want you to know, Manser, that I'm mighty fond of that strong man. Here they come back already. Now, you see, that didn't take so long. You're a troublemaker, Mahaffey. How do you figure that now? Ah, thank you, daughter, yes. This is just what I wanted. You and your mother stand right there. Now, we can get along with this, and I thank you kindly for waiting. Uh, By the way, I sure hope Mansur hits her a good square blow. So do I. He will, Jim. Never you fear, he will. All right, men. Let us proceed. Jim laid himself on the turf and the huge rock was placed on his chest. Then he braced himself on his heels and hands, inflated his chest, and nodded to Manser, who glanced once at Sam Mahaffey and then took up the sledge. He set his feet, took a deep breath, and swung. It was a tremendous pile-driver blow, and it was meant to destroy Jim, even though the hammer struck squarely and there was no slew. The rock was shattered, and Mansa stood there, a look of pure evil on his face. The crowd saw that look and jeered until he dropped the hammer and walked away. Then Jim got to his feet and clasped his hands over his head. Thank you, thank you. 
And now my lad and I will pass among you and take up a collection. If you think this performance was a fake, I big beg you to give us nothing. All right, Andy. Okay, Jim. And thanks to you, Sam Mahaffey. It was a good show all around, I figure. Go get your money now. The crowd gave generously and applauded even as Jim and I left the square and walked into Mahaffey's place. There, Jim bathed and we had lunch, but not before he'd taken Sam Mahaffey's hand and silently thanked him. After we'd eaten, we went out into the square again and started for Sandal Carrick's. But then I sighted her standing before a lace and ribbon shop next to the Cumberland house, so we crossed over and joined her there. Did you enjoy the stone-crushing sandal? No, I did not. I I was terrified. If it hadn't been for Sam Mahaffey and his pistol, that was a pistol, wasn't it? I think Mansa would surely have killed you. Well, he did his best anyway. But I want to ask you about something else. Yes? Do you have a good lawyer? We have a fine lawyer, but he does what my grandfather tells him to do. Not if it involves a murder. Have him at C.J. Ives' office at 4 o'clock. You do order me about, don't you? Do you object? No. Oddly enough, I don't. Keep this for me till then. Oh, your watch. Again. Now, uh, where can I find this Manser? Oh, Jim, no, you can't fight him. I'll just waste time looking for him if you don't tell me. Uh, oh, all right. He lodges right there at the Cumberland house. Most generally, he's down in the tavern cellar. You go around back, you'll find it. We'll meet at four o'clock at Ives. Yes, yes. Till then. Don't worry, Sandal. We'll be all right. Well, please, please be careful. You go to Mahaffey's, Andy. I'll see you at supper. Not very likely. I'm coming along with you. Well, all right, but stay out of the way. I'll stay out of the way. You can learn by watching. I know. Well, at least there's still time. Time? I mean, he hasn't murdered Sandal yet. Nor will he, by heaven. There's a door. That must be the cellar. We'll try it. All stone. The whole cellar. A big place, isn't it? Yeah. There's somebody over there, Jim. And they've got a well down here. Yeah. Set right level where the floor it is. This man's a giant. He is indeed. Excuse me, sir. Where can I find Mr. Manser? Hi, Mr. Manser. You? No, the manser I have in mind is as stout as you, but shorter. His legs are badly bowed. That's my brother Joe. I'm Tom, the host here. I run this here place. Now, that's fine. Now, where can I find Joe, manser? Joe! (laughs) Well, well. How'd you do it, Tom? He done it himself. (laughs) He walked right in as pretty as you please. But he brought his cub. We'll drop him in the well, eh? Where there's room for one, there's room for two. I'll use my knife. Stay clear, Andy. We'll take care of you first, strong man. Jim lunged straight forward and loosed a crashing blow to Joe Mance's stomach. The man dropped his knife and sagged to all fours as Jim swung around to meet his brother with a wild blow that landed hard on the temple. The innkeeper was momentarily dazed, and Jim took his time about landing another on the point of the jaw. And he went down hard. 
Then Joe Manser, who had regained his feet, was on top of Jim before he could turn. They went to the floor, but with a sudden twist, Jim was on his back, his shoulders against the stone and his knees to his stomach. He breathed once, and then shot both feet straight up. Manser caught the blow square in his chest and reeled backward, backward and into the well mouth. Where he disappeared. He, he can't swim. Joe can't swim. Uh, neither can I. But I'll take a look. Well, that's too bad. He must have hit his head on the way down. He's not even splashing. Uh, then he's dead. We can't get a rope down to him now. Well, I'll report the manner of his death to the authorities. But meantime, I want you out of town. Out by daybreak. Do you understand? I'll go. I'll go. Now see that you do or you'll end up like your brother. Come along, Andy. It must be nearly four o'clock. I want to go to my happies and clean up a bit first. I thought I told you to leave town. So you did, Ives. But it's a curious thing. Instead, I just told your innkeeper to leave town. What? Tom Manzer? And you're next. Now, look. I don't know just what you're up to, but there are ways of taking care of you. No, not now. Your Joe Manzer just tried murdering me. But this time he killed himself, as you might say. Oh, no. Oh, Jim. Oh, Jim. Oh, you're all right. I am. And you're safe now, Sandal. What is this? What are you all doing here? Hey, Jim, this is Mr. Silsby, my attorney. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Now, I, too, would like to know why we are here. It uh, has to do with these, Mr. Silsby. Uh, fur mittens? Where did you get those? And uh, these letters. I think they'll explain everything. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, make the old buzzer drool. Post them as you did the lap robe. Well, well. Popeye River Country... One of our trappers. My, my, Dedeman manager St. Louis. Say, this is something. It's quite clear, don't you think? Oh, quite clear, quite clear. Then I want all the property, including the Cumberland house that Ives has defrauded Mr. Peregrine of, to be reassigned immediately under your direction. No, wait, please, listen. Ives, from the very beginning, I have never liked you, and this is going to give me great pleasure. In fact, I'll happily assist in your prosecution. Maybe we can prosecute him for murder while we're at it. It was his hireling, Joe Manser, who murdered Mr. Barnum. Andy here is a witness. How do you like that? Oh, I like it very much indeed. <laughs> I certainly do. No, no, you must listen. I know nothing of any murder. I do admit I've somewhat misrepresented things to Mr. Peregrine, but I'm willing to make full restitution. It so happens I'm about to leave town... By daybreak? I... No, now. By sunset. Take care of the legal matters, will you, Mr. Silsby? At once, I certainly will. Oh, yes. Come then, Sandal. They can work this out alone. Yes, Jim. Jim. Yes, Sandal? It's a beautiful night. That isn't what you meant to say. All right. Do you think you'll miss traveling up and down the country, being a showman? Miss it? Oh. Yes, I'll, I'll miss it. Oh. But I can still do some tumbling and odd tricks right here. Oh. I've already spoken to Sam Mahaffey about it, and as soon as he's installed as host at the Cumberland House, I can show there regularly. You won't mind? I wouldn't miss a performance for all the world. 
Perhaps I can teach you some tricks, too. Me? Good heavens, like what? Well, uh, like fancy shooting with pistols. Ah, Jim, how horrible. I I might have killed you then. Uh, But you didn't. A good thing, too. Is it, Jim? Why? Well, because of Andy. Andy? Yes. You know, uh, Andy has no mother. Yes, I do know. Andy told me. Oh. But Andy will be all right now. Of, of course he will, Sandal. And I'll do my best, Jim, for both of you. Well, then we'll both be all right now. If you enjoyed that golden age of radio production, be sure to follow the Riley and Kimmy show. We feature old time radio shows from time to time. We have archived episodes available right now on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. Some of them have old time radio episodes on them. Please tell your friends about the Riley and Kimmy show. Help us grow. Our social media links are available on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. That's R I L E Y. And Kimmy, K-I-M-M-Y, dot com. If you friend, follow, and like us, we will friend and follow you back. Also, be sure to check out our website, events page, and our social media pages for updates where the Riley and Kimmy show will be appearing next. And we're available for your pop culture event and also those that are animal-based, about pets and animals, too. We have a spinoff show called Animal Special. So be sure to tell your friends about us. It's the Riley and Kimmy Show, the nerd variety talk show with daily pop culture episodes. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Find archive podcasts of the Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com.